Well, hello, folks. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herd Podcast. I should say welcome back. We uh, took a week off last week. Uh, it was just a bit intense with the budget and the estimates process, but I'm glad to be back with you this week and talking about Healthcare. Of course, I'm David Shepard. I'm the MLA for Edmonton City Center, proud new Democrat. And as some of you may know, I'm also the official opposition critic for health. Now, healthcare in Alberta is a complex thing. Think about it. It's a pretty massive system from top to bottom. All of the people that are involved, all the dollars that are spent, all of the different facilities in so many different areas to support Albertans in something that is so important to our quality of life. So I have the honor of serving as a health critic. It's something I've been learning a lot about over the last little while. And the history of healthcare in Alberta, of course, is a complex one from back under Premier Ralph Klein when we saw some serious cuts to a lot of services here in the province. We saw hospitals being blown up. We saw healthcare workers leaving the province as people were experienced massive layoffs on the front lines. We saw facilities shuttered. We saw beds shut down. We came into the early 2000s. We saw investments start to come back. We had to hire back a lot of skilled workers from other areas costs started to go up a little bit we started to build some new facilities we saw the transformation where we amalgamated all the health regions together we created alberta health services one of the biggest employers in canada to oversee all of our healthcare system in the province of alberta we've seen roller coaster funding up and down from one year to the next the price of oil has gone up and down and in the midst of that all sorts of work to try to improve how we deliver health care, how we can improve wait times, how we can make sure that no Albertan falls through the cracks on something that's so important to them and their family and their loved ones. Well, with this brand new budget, we've got a whole new plan for health care system. Under the United Conservative Party, Premier Kenny and Health Minister Tyler Shandro, they've got all sorts of plans in the works. They introduced their first budget at the end of October. And in that, we see some of the first steps towards that. We see uh, a cut of about $100 million less for nursing. Uh, they say that's going to be because they're going to be moving more of the responsibility from registered nurses to licensed practical nurses. But that's going to be a challenge in how that that happens. We see that we could possibly have fewer doctors in some of our rural communities. We see the government's making cuts to how much they're willing to pay doctors for their on-call time in rural communities. We see changes to the senior drug benefit where they're cutting off dependents and spouses under the age of 65. We see $54 million being cut from the hospital operating system, another $38 million from diagnostic services where the government hopes to find efficiencies and better ways to do things, but that remains to be seen how it's going to happen yet. But one of the biggest things we've probably seen is the challenge this government has in how it approaches healthcare providers and workers. So let's be clear, healthcare, a lot of the money we spend is on the people that help provide care. Physicians, nurses, frontline staff, they're all an important part of how each of us receives the care we need, but it does cost money. And what we've seen with this government is, unfortunately, first of all, their Bill 9 in the spring where they attacked people's contracts and put them on hold and refused to sit down at the table. And now that they are coming back to the table this fall with this budget they've announced, they are going to be asking frontline healthcare workers to take wage rollbacks of 2 to 5%. At the same time, as we said, they're expanding the scope of practice for licensed practical nurses. For others, asking them to do more while paying them less. 
They're cutting back on pay for rural physicians. They're talking about mandating where physicians are able to practice in the province of Alberta and wanting to increase alternative payment plans. There's a lot happening in healthcare and a lot of things that are involved. So as part of the budget process, we each minister comes to defend their budget and business plan before one of the standing committees of the uh, of the legislature. So on Tuesday, November 5th, I had an opportunity to ask a number of questions of the Minister of Health, Tyler Shandro, about his budget and his business plan. And I talked with him specifically about some of these concerns about how his government is approaching and treating frontline staff. You have... To put it, to put it, uh, I think lightly, you have an ambitious agenda as a government and as a minister for the healthcare system in the province of Alberta, as outlined in this business plan, as outlined in the legislation you've been bringing forward. You're attempting to affect a pretty massive transformation here. Uh, the metrics that you set forward in your business plan here, the majority of them are drawn from the McKinnon report. And the majority of them seem to be fixated on some particular numbers and certainly recognizing that the McKinnon report was largely looking at finances. And so looking at where, where do we save money? How can we save money? Not really looking at other effects that might have within the system. When you are coming in, I guess, with this sort of approach, this sort of legislation, this sort of negotiating tactics with physicians, not to mention with frontline workers, when we're dealing with things like where, you know, you're rolling back the amount that you're going to make for employer contributions by 1%, you're, you're reducing the amount, like as we just found out today, I guess, that you're willing to pay rural physicians that are on call. You are choosing to, you know, as a government, make several cuts in education. And indeed, we just met with resident physicians yesterday, as you, I know you did as well, as they're working through that process. And others are looking to determine if they want to practice here in the province of Alberta. And indeed, to ensure we're going to have the supply of both doctors and other medical workers, but we are driving up their tuition, yes. in particular for doctors, noting that that is a program that is particularly targeted for in-program increases beyond the amounts often of other programs, mm -hmm. but also for nurses, healthcare aides, at the same time as we are increasing the cost for their student loans, at the same time as we're removing their educational tax credits. What incentives, Minister, with these kinds of approaches are we actually giving to actually create more workers and actually to keep the workers we have and to motivate them to actually want to work with you? To yeah, help you achieve these things. I think the answer is, is, first of all, by pointing out that they aren't tactics, that this is, um, and, and I think very specifically as well, because the on-call program uh, was, was mentioned, uh, as I said in the House today, that this is a change to the on-call program, which was actually negotiated uh, or, or preceded through the, the mechanisms which are contemplated in the agreement. So the, the agreement with the AMA um, provides for a physician compensation committee. This, this went through the physician compensation committee. Um, and and so um, I, I would totally disagree that this is a tactic at all. This is something that that um, proceeded through the agreement, through the terms that were agreed upon by the. Fair enough. So today I'm going to talk a little bit with one of those frontline workers. I have a conversation with Nicole Heron. She's a registered nurse at the Royal Isle Hospital here in, in Edmonton, works in the intensive care unit, has experience in critical care, and uh, work uh, with some frontline services that are unique to inner city Edmonton with a group called T-March. So here's a bit of a conversation with her about her experience on the front lines in healthcare. 
Okay, so with me here today, I have Nicole Heron. She is a registered nurse at the Royal Alec Hospital right here in my constituency of Edmonton City Center. So, Nicole, you work in the intensive care unit, the ICU? That's correct. As well as with Team Arch. Tell us a little bit about Team Arch. What are you guys are about? Oh, wonderful. So, uh, Arch is the inner city community health and wellness team at the Royal Alexander Hospital. Um, it was founded by Dr. Catherine Dong and was originally born out of a need um, for repeat frequent users of service. So to the best of my knowledge, um, the experience that Dr. Dong had as an emergency room physician was she was consistently seeing the same uh, patients repetitively over and over again. She would do what she was trained to do as an emergency room physician, which is treat their malady that they came in for and then discharge them um, to whatever disposition that they had originally come in with. Now, In that, uh, there was a wealth of research that was done um, following up with these individuals. And what they found was most helpful to them was actually to um, see what the bigger picture was, what the bigger problems were, and how they could support them through those rather than just consistently putting them back out on the street. So what the ARCH team does is it works with a couple of different arms. Uh, There's a research arm, an education arm, uh, and then the ARCH team itself, as well as now the supervised right. consumption site in the Royal Alex. Yes. Yeah. So that works to support patients who uh, continue to use substances while in the hospital. Right. Uh, and or will um, once they leave the hospital, because as we all know that just because you're placed in the hospital doesn't automatically make your addiction disappear or right. go away. Yeah. yeah. Funny thing is that the stress of being <laughs> in a hospital oftentimes can make it worse. Right. This right. is this is how um, these individuals tend to cope uh, with with stress in their life. So basically it works on a harm reduction approach to support individuals. All right. So now for those who don't know, uh, the Royal Alc Hospital, as I said, is here part of my constituency, Edmonton City Centre, just outside of Edmonton downtown. So at the Royal Alc, you guys are dealing with a lot of folks who are street involved, who may be homeless, uh, may be struggling with mental health addictions. And so, yeah, so that's something that's fairly common in the emergency room. So what you're talking about here is Team Arch was put together basically because you had individuals coming in from the street who were struggling with some of these other issues so they would come in maybe they had a uh, they had a wound that needed care or they had some other condition to get looked at and you realize that if you help them with some of the other social issues so with their housing or with uh, addictions treatment or some of these other things then that helped basically save time money and helped improve quality of life for these individuals absolutely well said. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, I've uh, I've had the chance to meet Doctor uh, Doctor Dong and to and to have a good chat about that work, and I really appreciate everything you guys do there. So that ties in really well with what I what part of what we're talking about here today. So we have this new budget from the UCP government. Uh, so they are talking a lot about saving money on healthcare. You've probably heard that. Eh? I have. Indeed. And we recognize healthcare is a big expense in the province. But one of the things I find interesting about this budget, and maybe you can give me some thoughts on this, from your work with Team Arts. So when we have the government cutting back on some of these social supports, so we see that they are choosing to de-index H. So they are not increasing those amounts for many of these individuals like the type that you're working with who are going to be on H and on a fixed income. We see cuts to programs that are uh, supporting folks who are struggling with with housing and homelessness. We see cuts to uh, other programs for people that may be childcare, stuff like that. So when we have these sorts of cuts in these social areas, does that have an effect on the kind of work that you're doing uh, at the Royal Alex and with T-March? Oh, I would say absolutely. Um, no, I just want to take a quick point out that I am here representing my own personal opinions yes, and not of that of my employer of Arch. Um, but 
I fear that we are going to see a cascade of issues following cuts to these social supports. Um, my husband actually works um, with adults with developmental disabilities. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, right. there so are some huge age funding, well, yeah. PDD, those yeah. those sorts of things. Um, and I can tell you that these individuals are already living below the poverty level. They're they're struggling to begin with. So to take these kinds of um, supports away from them, to diminish them, to like a really genuinely unlivable and and dehumanistic level um, is going to be detrimental for the healthcare system. We're going to see individuals who could have been helped and supported early in preventative care, in preventative medicine, in supporting them to to be, um, I guess, the best humans that they can be. We're going to start to see them coming in with bigger, worse issues later on. Uh, Additionally speaking, with um, all of the cuts to healthcare, we're not going to be able to necessarily, or I feel that um, there may not necessarily be the time allotted to, to give them the supports that they require. So break that down a little bit for you, Nicole. We say cuts to health care. So uh, we are seeing basically the government has said that we will maintain and we'll even increase funding a little bit for uh, Alberta Health Services and some of this to sort of maintain things. But we are seeing that, yeah, they're talking about perhaps wage rollbacks, uh, talking about potential layoffs through attrition. Uh, is that what you're talking about there? What kind of effects does that have for you on the front line? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so far, I think we're a little bit early in the game to be speaking directly to that. Uh, I fear that already there is, well, I guess well known, there is a nursing shortage. There is a healthcare um, staffing okay. shortage so you don't already have enough in existence. People working on the front lines. Correct. Already, already not enough people. So I fear that um, with continued cuts to uh, staffing levels, any um, potential cuts uh, to resources available for these individuals. I fear that um, that that cuts to staffing specifically is going to directly affect frontline staff. I think that a big thing that um, that nurses fight for is safe staffing levels. So, uh, in my personal opinion, safe staffing means more than enough warm bodies. Uh, what st- safe staffing looks like is it includes staff to be mentally, physically, and emotionally in the game. It includes preventing staff burnout by supporting those that are already there, as well as it means supporting staff retention. So, supporting those that are already there. It means supporting our senior staff so they're able to support the newbies. It includes a safe staffing mix of RNs and other support staff, and it means patient safety as well as staff staff safety. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying there. And so what is your sense of what what is the morale like for for nurses on the front line? I know when I've had the chance to go sort of across the province and talk with nurses at a number of different hospitals, a number of different areas around the province, particularly uh, after Bill 9 in in the spring that sort of broke contracts with workers, I was hearing from a lot of folks that they were feeling stressed, they're feeling burnt out, like you were saying. There's not enough staff. When people call in sick, there's no one to cover. They're running stressed. They're having to look after more patients than they feel they can actually give adequate care to. What's your sense of things? Absolutely. That's a great question, actually, and something that I'd love to speak to about my experience in critical care as well as before okay. that in, in the um, on the surgical units. Yeah. So in ICU, typically work with a one-to-one uh, nursing ratio. So we'll have one nurse to one patient. Because these patients are so critically ill when they first come in, we are typically giving them upwards of 100% biomedical care. Now, as they start to recover, get better, hopefully, we're able to transition that to involve more of a psychosocial dynamic aspect. So being able to support their their mental needs, their um, 
their their coping needs, helping them feel more like a person again after they've been through this absolutely traumatizing mm. event. Having said that, some people also aren't able to recover from the, their illness and, and they will go on to pass away often in ICU settings. And a really beautiful thing that we get to do as ICU nurses is we get to support the families. Ah. We get to be there during those really inspirational moments where we get to hold hands. We get to Mm. be leaders in helping deliver whatever a good death looks like to these individuals and to their families. Now, unfortunately, something that we are seeing, we've, we've always seen, but I personally feel like we're seeing more of is the concept of doubling. So one nurse to two patients in Mm. ICU. Now, while this is, I believe, a safe practice for patients that are stable, ready to go out to a medicine or a surgery ward, we're starting to see it more and more with patients that may not be ready to be doubled. So patients that are still on on a ventilator, on a breathing machine, Mm. patients that are confused and combative, patients that are climbing out of beds. Now, these are potentially safety issues, both for patients and for staff. And what happens is, is when the nurse is divided between two patients, we're not able to give that same quality of care. And even though it may be safe, I personally feel like it, it hurts in, in the cockles of my heart that, right. that we're not able to have those beautiful, magical moments. Something that I fear may happen if um, nursing is continued to be cut or replaced with um, other designations is we may not have that time to spend with patients and with their families. Yeah, and that sounds like a concern to me, and certainly for a government that's uh, talking very uh, strongly about wanting to have patient-centered care, uh, that sounds to me like that could be a real reduction in that. How common is that now, this doubling that you're seeing in ICU? So typically we'll see two to three doubles on a shift on average. Okay. Oftentimes this is safe, this is appropriate, this is acceptable. Um what I fear is that three will become our new baseline Uh, and then four will become our new baseline and we will continue to grow. And it's the expectation that we have doubles rather than we are doubling patients that are safe to, to so setting these new that. levels of tolerance and start to degrade the quality of care. Absolutely. Something that I think that nurses are really great for is adapting and overcoming. And uh, I fear that someday we won't necessarily be able to do that. So, What's your sense of things then? I mean, so ICU obviously is a unique environment. Um, as you connect with some nurses in other parts of the hospital, yourself, you mentioned yourself, you've worked in critical care in some other areas. What's the experience like for uh, nurses in some of the other frontline areas at the moment? I love that you asked that question. Uh, I originally come from the surgical ward, so I floated okay. through um, about half a dozen surgery units before I went on to work in okay. intensive care. Um, and when I went to ICU, it felt like a lot of the problems that existed on the wards disappeared. Hmm. I felt like because we had that one-to-one ratio, we were able to deal with issues right away. We have excellent support staff in the ICU currently. Our management team, our leadership team, our educators, our physicians listen and care. I've honestly never worked anywhere as beautiful as the Royal Alec ICU. Um, having said that, my experience working on the wards was was very different. The nurses there, the staff there are constantly being forced to do more with less. Hmm. And patients see it. 
families see it, nurses see it. A typical uh, level of patient, uh, sorry, nurse to, to patient ratio is one nurse to four patients on a day shift, sometimes upwards of five patients, specifically if the unit is short-staffed or if there's an overcapacity bed in use. One nurse to five patients on evenings, and I've seen upwards of one nurse to eight patients on a night shift. Wow. Yeah, with the expectation that patients will sleep through the night and be mm-hmm. stable. I can tell you as someone who used to work a lot of nights, that is not necessarily the case. Yeah. And so what kind of uh, workload is that for nurses? So a nurse has, say, four or five patients. What are they expected to do for those individuals? Oh, that's a great question. So oftentimes you start off with the morning receiving report. You are doing basic... ADL, so activities of daily living. So you're supporting them with basic hygiene, with cleaning, with turning and repositioning if they require it. You're providing all of their medications in a safe and timely manner. You are doing dressing changes, helping assist with mobility. You're Mm. working oftentimes as an ad hoc social worker, trying to support them in in all ways that you're able as a nurse. Um, Kind of a a fun little colloquialism we often say as well, if nobody else knows how to do it, the nurse can do it, is that it oftentimes falls to, to the nursing responsibility to support patients and their families. So it sounds to me a bit like then, you know, we talk with teachers and say, well, you know, it's not just the number of students in my classroom. It's what challenges might those students have. So they could have a class of 15, but if they have five students that are special needs and have behavioral problems, that could be way more stressful than a class of 25. And I imagine then with a nurse, you have four or five patients that may be a workable thing if they're all relatively stable. But if, as you said, they have any kind of a special need or other issues, that can become incredibly challenging. Absolutely. So uh, a beautiful day would look like four young, healthy appendectomies, Mm -hmm. and then you get to send them all home. Unfortunately, that's not the typical case that we're seeing uh, or that I saw on the wards. Uh, More more habitually, it was you may luck out and have one patient that is um, able to to walk themselves to and from the bathroom. Oftentimes, you'll have three or four even that aren't able to. Many people that are bedridden, people with multiple complex wounds. And I wish I could show you a Google image search of the the kinds of things that that (laughs) Uh, we're working with. I probably prefer not to just after breakfast. Yeah, all all of the the dreams and interventions and all those task things that we're doing as well as supporting the families and that's that's a big one is helping them to understand because not everybody's born into a medical family knowing what to expect and how to speak this language and so how often would you say on the wards right now are nurses working shorthanded oh i can't speak to that specifically it's it's been a about four years since i've been out on the wards um talking to some of my friends that are still out working working on the wards frequently okay Frequently, they're feeling quite a bit of pressure, uh, oftentimes having to sort of take on extra patients. Correct. Extra patients, sicker patients, heavier patients, both emotionally, physically um, and and the medications, as as you know, I'm sure everybody knows the big catch right now is that the boomers aren't getting any younger, any healthier. So we're getting patients that are oftentimes requiring much higher levels of support than they were 10, 20 years ago. So what's your sense then of what the morale is like uh, amongst sort of frontline nursing staff? Oh, it's it can be heartbreaking at times. It's it's really come and go. Um, again, I think that in my unit um, right now, we haven't really felt a lot of push and a lot of cuts. I feel like our leadership has done a good job likely protecting us from right. that. I fear that they're going to come to us. I'm starting to see some of the issues emerging on our unit that I saw on the wards is that the nurses aren't um, being afford not not able to take their breaks, um, spending excess time with patients that 
may have difficult um, behavior patterns or, or medical challenges. Yeah. So when we, you know, this is something I raised with the minister uh, when I had the chance to sit down with him during the, uh, the health budget estimates the other week. When we have the government then sort of coming out and doing things like with Bill 9, sort of breaking initially the contracts for, for nurses like yourself and sort of saying, we're going to walk away from the negotiating table until because we can. And then sort of coming back now and sort of saying, now we're going to ask everyone to take a 2 to 5% wage rollback. We're going to be looking at making cuts when we have the premier sort of musing and talking about surgical, you know, nurses sort of saying, well, you know, they take coffee breaks and too much time to clean up the sweets in between <laughs> surgeries. You know, it's, it's more efficient in the private care. You know, what kind of effect is, do, you, do you feel this is going to have for yourself, your colleagues, folks that are trying to, trying to struggle through and, as you said, do more with less? In fear of not coming across as quite glib, uh, I would like to propose to perhaps some of uh, these individuals that would they or their loved one like to have surgery after an eight-hour OR? Would they like to be next on the docket without the suite being appropriately cleaned or the staff mm. having their breaks? So, in terms of yeah, when they're you know when they're talking about wage rollbacks, when they're talking about you know public sector workers need to recognize that uh, private sector workers have had a hard time and they need to sacrifice just like these other people have. Uh, uh, even here, people use terms like public sector workers need to feel the pain. Ooh, I don't love that. I feel like instead of lowering the standards for us, why don't we raise the standards for everybody? Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as the wage rollbacks, I'm I'm quite fortunate in my situation that I don't have kids, that uh, I own my own home. I don't have large, I haven't un- um, had to get into myself into tremendous amounts of debt. But I can absolutely say to some of my colleagues about my colleagues that this is going to be huge to their household, that it's going to change the dynamic and that I feel that this is only step one in a test to see if the current government um, will be able to push us and if so how far before we push back so yeah my my concern is basically uh, like i mean i hear about how how difficult things are for a lot of frontline workers already the kind of challenges and indeed we know the kind of chaos that has existed in the healthcare system in alberta for a lot of years and during our four years in government we tried to help stabilize that a bit, maintain some stable, predictable funding. Um, I've heard from some that they saw some improvements start to happen on the front lines and that. My concern is that we're going to see that go back and that indeed, you know, are there other employment opportunities for folks like you? If, if it gets to a point where, you know, we're rolling back wages, people are feeling stressed on the front line, it's affecting their mental health. Are we going to see nurses picking up and leaving Alberta for other opportunities? Oh, I would say that it's ignorant to not believe that they would leave. I mean, all we have to do is look back to the Klein years. I come from a very unique situation that I'm a third generation nurse. Both of my parents were RNs surviving the Klein years, as well as we had an, um, my dad's best friend, who's a registered nurse, that survived through it. And he had to move into my parents' basement. He ended up having to relocate to the United States because he couldn't get work here. He couldn't get a job here. I fear for all of our our nurslings, our younger nursing staff, mm. that if and when the, the bumping begins, that they will be out of a job and will have to go elsewhere. Um, I work full time as an RN, as in the ICU, as well as casually in with Arch. So I work more than full time with Alberta Health Services, as well as I have a side hustle teaching um, medication administration. Okay. So absolutely. 
I can see nurses leaving or taking on other roles. We are a very skilled and very strong workforce, and we know um, what we're worth. This government likes to talk about capital being mobile. People are too. (laughs) (laughs) Insightful. So, Nicole, one of the other things I want to talk to you about as a sort of frontline healthcare provider, and as you shared with me, you are a member of the LGBTQ2S plus community. Uh, As a healthcare provider, with that perspective, one of the things that's been in the news lately is this private member's bill, Bill 207. So brought forward by MLA Dan Williams. Um, and basically what that bill is is sort of talking about is wanting to uphold or strengthen conscience rights for healthcare providers. So that being then if a healthcare provider, for example, due to their personal uh, religious or philosophical beliefs is not comfortable, say, prescribing birth control or uh, referring someone for abortion services or um, perhaps providing uh, medically assisted um Medically assist, medical assistance in dying or a number of other things that they would have the right to basically say, no, I'm not going to provide that service, but not only not provide that service, also not provide that patient with a referral to somebody else who would provide that service. In, in your view, as someone that provides health care and as someone who comes from a community that I've heard folks talk about concerns with being marginalized in access to care, what are your thoughts on some of that? Oh, thank you so much for bringing this up. Uh, and I think that it's really important that you pointed out that in our current legislation, uh, care providers are able to refuse to provide these services should you be anti-abortion, but they, they are expected to refer someone to... Uh, another care provider that will support them with these services. So I think in giving care healthcare providers the option to not refer, that is such a dangerous situation to put some of our most marginalized and most vulnerable people in. So a story about one of my friends uh, who transitioned about 10 years ago, I had asked him, um, how was your situation uh, transitioning? How was it through the healthcare system? Just from a nursing perspective, mm-hmm. I want to know how things went for him. And it broke my heart to find out that during that time that someone who already felt uncomfortable in their own skin, that was looked down upon by society and that was outcast from his family, the most core sense of, of his support, when he reached out to the healthcare system to support him in becoming the person that he knew that he was, um, the healthcare system is here to provide care, not judgment. They turned him away and they didn't provide a referral. So I think that that's really dangerous. It's very difficult for a lot of individuals who feel marginalized to, uh, to ask for help in, in the first place. So when they are turned away and turned away without any other options, navigating the healthcare system is difficult for anybody. So having to try and navigate that red tape and that bureaucracy, bureaucracy without any help is only damaging the relationship and damaging these individuals and making them feel like the healthcare system is an unsafe place for them to access. Um, I think on top of that, the the risks it puts against women or individuals with uteruses, mm-hmm. I think is a better term, um, is it puts them in danger. I think we're going to see a lot more um, things being taken into individuals' own hands. I fear that 
we won't have as many safe contraceptive opportunities. So I think it's important to note that this new Bill 207 doesn't just speak to things like medical assistance and dying. It doesn't mm-hmm. just speak to abortion rights, um, which are two very huge and important parts of the system. Yes. It also, I believe, provides care providers with the opportunity to not refer for birth control pills to not per- refer for contraceptives. Yeah, it doesn't provide for, it doesn't mention any specific services. Yeah. It basically says any medical service for if they have a conscientious objection, they would not be required to. To not even refer. And I think yeah. that um, looking at that from a very, very privileged perspective, like, okay, I'll just go and find the next person that can support me. But I think we're completely ignoring a huge part of our community who may be um, people new to the country. Mm. English may be their second language. Um, They may rural communities, rural communities, absolutely, that they may not have that type of access or know how to navigate these systems that we're putting them at huge risk and basically saying, I can't help you. Sorry. And closing the door rather than saying, I don't you I can't or I don't feel comfortable supporting you. But here's somebody who can. And that's missing a huge opportunity. And I think we're going to see a lot of um, potentially negative fallout because of that. Sure. So in your own experience as a healthcare provider and working, I guess, with people at all sorts of levels, doctors, surgeons, uh, RNs, LPNs, others sort of at all levels, uh, have you seen people have to grapple with this question themselves when they've had um, some level of, I guess, conscientious objection and how they've had to deal with it? Yeah, great question. I would like to think, and from my observations, that we are predominantly all here for the same common goal, to support the patients that we that we work for, yeah. to support the individuals that we work for. Um, and I think something that's really great with our current legislation is it does provide healthcare providers the opportunity to exercise their own religious or personal freedoms mm. while also being able to essentially pass off the buck to somebody who is able to, to better support them with their requests and with their needs. So I haven't seen huge uh, I haven't seen really any issue, any significant outstanding issue with our current legislation. Um, I fear that with Bill 207, that there may actually be more issues. More problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine it's got to be difficult. You know, I, I talk with some some folks I know who've worked as ER doctors and others, especially when you're working with families at end of life and, you know, having to make very difficult decisions about, you know, continuing with care, you know, continuing with, you know, with resuscitation, these sorts of things. And I know I've talked with people who themselves have struggled as physicians with continuing to provide care for someone that maybe where they feel it's prolonging suffering, but they, they work with the family and they listen to what the family needs. And indeed, as you say, you know, if they feel themselves that they can't continue with that, they, they, they have colleagues who can step in. Absolutely. I feel like there is kind of this societal expectation. I don't know where it comes from. I, I don't know if it comes from TV shows or the media that nobody's allowed to die. There seems to be this kind of general idea that um, everybody should live forever and that everybody should go down fighting. And that's not necessarily what a good death looks like for everybody. So having services like medical assistance in dying are so crucial to supporting people. Um, Or even supported palliative care. And that is one thing I will commend this government on is that they've committed to increasing supports and services for palliative care. Uh, I know from my own father, he was able to pass away at home. He had great home care support and you know he chose not to have further treatment he was given pain relief but that was it through end of life 
And that, that for us was, was a, a great option and a good resolution. And, and for some people, palliative care absolutely is the way to go. Good palliative care cannot be replaced. I guess comparing palliative care to uh, medical assistance to dying, in my opinion, is like comparing um, addictions. So it's, uh, you can use the same uh, comparison addictions is for some people abstinence-based programs work super well that that is great for them that is how they are able to live their best lives uh, conversely some people that's not realistic for them that's not what support looks like for them so that's why we have a harm reduction based model so i think having these two different modalities in end-of-life care is equally as as imperative absolutely that we have those opportunities for people to have their good death whatever that looks like for them and you know that kind of brings me back around you know you talked earlier about some of the harm reduction work you've been involved with with team arch and you've talked about how a lot of that you view that as preventive care. So you try to catch these issues before they bloom into something worse. Or if, you know, if they're having larger issues, try to get down to the roots of those issues to, to sort of solve the problem. So it's an investment of time and resources and indeed dollars at the front end, but it is a significant savings in the long term. And it sounds like that's sort of maybe a lot of what can help us get a grip on some of these things in healthcare, but maybe is kind of against the grain with what this government's proposing in their budget. Absolutely. I think that um, it really speaks to this interesting phenomena of this kind of, and I put in quotes, not not my budget, mm. not, not my issue. We'll put it off to the side and deal with it later. Um, so one of the really great things that I've seen coming out of the supervised consumption site, uh, which is where I, I tend to work with, with the ARCH team, um, is being able to provide people with access to clean to clean needles, to sterile supply. So I guess I have this really interesting and really unique opportunity that I get to see literally the same patients in intensive care as I do in the supervised consumption site. Okay. And one of the big issues that comes out of using, reusing needles, unsterile supplies. So, so one of the big issues that I see is the infections and yes. that, that, that come so with- bloodborne diseases. And, you, yeah. you got it. So the cellulitis, so you're going to see skin infections, bone infections, right. heart infections, these okay. huge life altering things. They're going to end people up in ICU. That's going right. to cost what, approximately three to $4,000 a day to mm. the healthcare system. Um, when really we could have provided them a 50 cents needle, right. <laughs> sterile needle for sure. One of the really great things that's also coming out uh, is the uh, injectable op- opiate agonist therapy. Right. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with that? Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Opioid replacement. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So for some people that means methadone, for some people that means suboxone, and for some people that have just been through the system and tried everything over and over again, it means giving them actually clean, sterile, hospital grade quality opiates. So so giving mm. them injectable dilaudid. And I can speak anecdotally firsthand to some of the patients that I've supported with the IOT program, the injectable opiate agonist therapy program, seeing them in ICU in their absolute sickest. In ICU, we see people at their worst. We never see people at their best. And having them transition and go out and and start and continue being supported on the nursing wards and then seeing them access uh, the injectable opiate agonist program, seeing them then be able to be discharged to the community and be housed have wow. have jobs, have lives, have purpose, be wow. actual 
joyful contributing members of society transformative yeah it's yeah. it's not just this um magical fairy tale that right. we, that all us harm reductionists want to mm -hmm. put down people's throats i can say i've seen it firsthand how beautiful this program is and how much it changes if you take a look at the cost of one person transmitting hiv getting an osteomyelitis a pericarditis valve vegetation on their heart all these complications that come with inject uh, injecting opioids um that I imagine I don't have the numbers, but that's got to right. pay for the SDS for a year at least. There you go. Just one person. And so, yeah, absolutely. And so there's incredible value in that just for the transformation of people's lives alone. Then, of course, as you say, the savings in costs to the healthcare system, the capacity that gives us then to deal with other critically ill patients in a more timely manner and recognizing that there can be some impacts on communities and sort of concerns that we've certainly heard from people around needle debris or other things that 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 may occur. But but even recognizing that certainly there is room for if we're saving this much money to make those investments then to help support communities. So it's not a question of either or. I think it sounds like there's lots of opportunities for us across the board. Absolutely. Uh, another great thing that comes with the ARCH program, as well as with supervised consumption sites, is it takes individuals that are basically on the margins of society and it repersonifies them. Mm. It, it lets them know that the healthcare system is a safe place for them to access mm. and that they are deserving of care. Yeah. Oftentimes uh, patients that I've supported in ICU that are some of just bless them the most wily patients you will ever meet. <laughs> I later yeah. go on to develop real genuine connections with yeah. in the SCS. Real relationships of trust. You got it. Yeah. And then they start asking about things like, Oh, Tell me about this flu shot. Right. You know, we're able to refer them to right. primary so and preventative all of a sudden care. They, they start to invest in self-care. They start to become connected to community. And like you say, yeah, it can change their lives. It's amazing what happens when you treat someone like a person. It's amazing. So to wrap things up, I really appreciate your coming in today, Nicole. If you had the opportunity to sit down with Premier Kenny or to sit down with uh, Tyler Shandor, our Minister of Health, and talk to them sort of about the budget that they're putting forward and their plans for the healthcare system, what would you want them to know? Oh, I look at these men and the first thing I want to say is who hurts you? <laughs> Why are you the way that you are? And I, I genuinely think that they need some support just as much as any other human does. Um, but I would ask them what they themselves would be willing to give up that I would love for them to follow us around for a day to see the issues that we see, to know the things we know and to talk to the people that we talk to. I would love for them to see the tear shed. I would love for them to then look these patients and these families in the eyes and say, okay, we're going to take that away from you now. I think that, um, Sometimes a hospital can be run kind of like a restaurant and that nobody gets mad at the meat supplier mm. if the food doesn't taste good. It's Everybody the, comes the after the staff. server. Yeah. <laughs> I've worked a few restaurants. I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming into Tata and thank you for the work that you do in the healthcare system on the front lines to, to you and all of your fellow nurses and other workers. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do and keep fighting the good fight.
All right. Well, I really appreciate Nicole coming in and talking about that. And, you know, this is something that's top of mind for me. And I think of a lot of Albertans right now, we're seeing a lot of cuts in a lot of different areas uh, that are affecting a lot of people across the province, whether it's de-indexing age, whether it's raising income tax, whether it's taking the cap off insurance rates, people across Alberta are paying more in the name of this government's fiscal austerity, talking about the fact that we need to tighten our belts and rein in our spending as a province. Well, the interesting thing is that in the premier's office, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of belt tightening going on. We've seen over the last week a few things. Last week, in the uh, estimates for executive council, Rachel Notley, leader of the official opposition, questioning Premier Kenny about a $16,000 charter flight that he booked for his conservative friends from his pancake party in Calgary to the Council of the Federation in Saskatoon. Uh, $16,000 flight for Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe and his wife, uh, New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs and his wife, and the Premier of the Northwest Territory so that they could get from Jason Kenney's photo op in Calgary over to the Council of the Federation in Saskatoon. Now, Premier Doug Ford, of course, was there in Calgary as well, but he had the common decency to book a regular commercial flight showing that those were available and possible. So one has to ask why Premier Kenny felt $16,000 of taxpayers' money was his to use for basically a bit of a vanity play. Well, on top of that, we found out that one of Premier Jason Kenney's closest advisors has billed Alberta taxpayers for more than $45,000 worth of expenses in the first six months of this government. And that includes nearly $19,000 worth of flights, meals, and swanky hostel stays in London. Now, it's a gentleman uh, named David Knightleg. He's uh, he's a smart man, Yale and Oxford educated, international banker, currently paid nearly $200,000 a year as the premier's principal advisor. I uh, would note that his expenses so far are three times more than any other member of the Premier's staff, and that includes Mr. Kenny's chief of staff. Now, these expenses after six months, you know, they're even more than when uh, Rachel Notley was Premier, than more than her principal ex- secretary expensed over four years. Okay, so we're talking a lot of money here. So that $19,000 spent in London, that's four trips, each of those being three to four days long, stayed at some lovely five-star hotels over in the upscale Soho neighborhood and, you know, uh, had lovely things like like a Art Nouveau champagne bar. So quality, quality stays that we're talking here. Anyway, so we asked some questions yesterday sort of saying, well, if we are spending $19,000 to send this gentleman over to London on behalf of Alberta taxpayers... What is he actually accomplishing for us there? Now, Premier Kenny's office has come out and said, well, at first they said this, uh, this is about trying to attract investment and business opportunities for Alberta. So we asked, quite politely, uh, could you provide us then with an itinerary? Who has Mr. Leg, Mr. Knightleg been meeting with and which companies is he speaking to? At that point, the Premier's office pivoted to say that, well, he wasn't just there to attract business. He's there to defend our energy industry. And since he's there as part of Premier Kenny's $30 million war room, efforts, they can't actually provide any information to Alberta taxpayers because they're afraid it could be used against us by foreign-funded activists. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, $19,000 spent in London by the Premier's principal advisor. You can't know what that money was being spent for because of foreign-funded 
activists. Now, speaking of that $30 million war room, we just had a CBC story break. Now, Steve Allen, Premier Kenny's hand-picked commissioner to head the Alberta's public inquiry into their allegations of these foreign-funded activists. And again, these are allegations that amount at best, in my view, to conspiracy theories. But anyways, uh, so you have this commissioner that's been picked to head the premier's inquiry, uh, and he has personally awarded now a $905,000 sole source contract. To be clear, that means nobody else had the opportunity to bid on this work. This contract was simply handed to a legal business in this $905,000 for legal business to a Calgary law firm, Denton's, where Mr. Allen's son is a partner. So this contract was issued 11 days after Mr. Allen was named by Premier Kenny to head the public inquiry into the funding of anti-Alberta energy campaigns, very official title. It is nearly half of their $2.5 million budget awarded without contest, sole source contract to a firm where the commissioner's son is a partner. At a time when this government is asking Albertans to tighten their belts. When they're telling our public school boards, when they're telling all of the school boards across the province that they need to be more responsible with taxpayer dollars. At a time when the Minister of Municipal Affairs is writing op-eds and lecturing the mayors of our cities about frivolous spending, of which he cannot provide a single example, this government is turning spending $16,000 on charter flights, spending $19,000 on London flights hotel rooms, $45,000 in six months on the principal advisor's expenses, and now $905,000 contract to a firm associated with the commissioner. That is hypocrisy at the highest levels. We already see it. Albertans are not happy about this. This is why they rebelled against Premier Redford back in 2014. This is why the progressive conservative government of Alberta did not survive the election of 2015. And I would suggest to Premier Kenny and the UCP government that if they want to lecture Albertans about fiscal responsibility, they start to demonstrate a little bit more of that themselves. Well, thanks, folks. That brings us to the end of another episode of The Herd. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week uh, with more from the legislature, more on the budget, and more on what's happening uh, in the province of Alberta. I'd like to close out today. You know, uh, we often close out the show with a little bit of music. And today, I'd like to give a little bit of a tribute to someone that I knew from the Edmonton music scene, a guy named Larry Shalast. Uh, Larry passed away last Wednesday, uh, November 6th. Uh, of a sudden heart attack at the age of 54. Larry was the drummer with seminal Edmonton country punk band Junior Gone Wild. He started playing with them back in 1991, stayed behind the kit with them for a number of albums. I had the chance to meet and work with Larry in one of the post-Junior Gone Wild projects with uh, their lead songwriter, Mike McDonald, the Mike McDonald Band. Larry was an incredible drummer and a hell of a guy. <laughs> little cantankerous on the outside, little crusty exterior, but the man had a heart of gold. He was one of the kindest people I knew. Always had support for everybody he worked with. Solid player. Always showed up for the gig. Played with Junior Gone Wild. Played uh, played with me with uh, backing up Tannis Nixie. And I know played with a lot of different people in and around the Edmonton music scene. When Junior Gone Wild got back together a few years back, he got behind the kid again. Has been playing with them for a while. And unfortunately, to uh, the great sorrow of 
everyone here in the Edmonton music scene, I think indeed many across Alberta, we lost Larry last week. So our thoughts go out today to Larry's friends, his family, everyone who who loved and knew Larry and had the opportunity to play with him. We wish them all the best as they work through their own grief and their sorrow. So today we're going to send out the show with a track from Junior Gone Wild with Larry Shalast on the drums. Uh, one of Junior Gone Wild's uh, more recent recordings from 2015. I understand that they've been doing a number of recordings and may have a new album coming out. But anyways, from more recently, Junior Gone Wild, a song called Barricades, the Hockey Riot song. Thanks, folks. We'll see you next week. i